Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. And today we have a guest, Chase, and we're going to be talking about digital rights. Do you want to tell us what that subject is? Hello, uh, I'm Chase, and yeah, I'm here to talk about digital rights. So, well, firstly, to be painful, I'm not even sure I'm a fan of the term digital rights. To me, it's really just your standard rights. They just, as they exist when you happen to be in front of a computer or a phone or any other digital device. Yeah, that does seem to make it like a less, it almost sound like a lesser right. It's like, these aren't your normal rights. These are your special digital rights. Yeah, exactly. It's and kind of like the way that the, the, uh, the homophobic people were like, well, these gays want special rights. I'm like, no, we just want the same rights you have. Exactly. Digital rights are the same thing. They're just your rights. So what are these digital rights? <laughs> so, or what are these rights that extend to the digital domain? Fundamentally, it's, it's all the same rights. We, the right to a freedom of speech, the right to some privacy, um, personal space, personal, personal privacy. And man, that's, that's about, that's about it for digital rights. So why should I be worried about my digital rights? Don't I have the right to freedom of speech? You do in the real world, but when it gets to digital, it gets real gray, really quick. Uh, Facebook is a fantastic example of this. When you post things on Facebook, Facebook has an internal algorithm that determines who sees them and when they see them and how many of your friends see them. And this is rated by a lot of things, mostly by what Facebook thinks your friends want to see, which may not be what you're saying, which isn't, isn't fantastic on its own, but also certain topics that Facebook just avoids. They don't want talked about on their site. So even if you post about it, they just blanket block it from anyone seeing. They don't notify you. And it's, it's not a direct blocking of freedom of speech, but it's a subtle undermining of it. And it can be, it can be very problematic. That's one example. Um, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I dislike that as well. Uh, but since it's their platform, do they have some right to do that if they've determined that that is what their customers want and what will serve their uh, corporate not getting sued and or losing customers' interests? They're absolutely allowed to do it. They're legally fine to do it, but... But they shouldn't be. I, I, would, I don't want to say ethically. I guess it is, but ethically they shouldn't be because they are in ways interfering with your freedom of speech. And Now, if they didn't have a uh, those blanket prohibitions on certain topics, which I agree is bullshit, and instead just weighted stories based on what your friends want to see, wouldn't that be okay? Because then they're providing a service to the people who use Facebook. Like I, I used to, back when this was actually an option and I had less than five bazillion friends, uh, I just had my uh, feed set up chronologically. I would see things as they came in and you know scroll through it until I caught up with the last thing. And obviously I can't do that anymore. But that privileges people who just spam Facebook constantly. And I, I don't want to reward people who spam Facebook constantly with crap. I want to see the stuff that's actually interesting to me. And if Facebook knows what that is, I am very happy that, that they promote thing like Robin Wiblin stuff to the beginning of my feed. And it is in their interest to do so. And I'm sure they will continue to do it. The reason it can be a problem is it, to me, it's one of the big causes of sensory bubbling uh, information. What am I looking for here? Accessibility. No, uh, polarization in society. Yeah, but specifically the the term I don't think is exactly sensory bubbling, but it's it's your news bubble, your yeah. information source bubble. Sure. Your there's is there a term? Echo chamber. I've heard the term info echo bubble. chamber is good. Info bubble. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Uh, where 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 were we? What did you last ask? Uh, I asked, is, isn't that a useful service to cut out the boring crap and give me the stuff I actually want to see? 
Yeah. Yes. It's it's a very useful service, and it is in Facebook's interests to do it. But it very much leads to a sensor bubbling phenomena, a news bubbling. It, it gives you your own echo chamber. It limits your exposure to all disagreeing opinions, alternate alternate perspectives, and that can be a very dangerous thing. And personally, I think it some of those effects have already manifested on Facebook. If you have seen any of your friends kind of lean their their political leanings ever more radical, but specifically while on Facebook, mm. I think that's some of the reasons some of the reason we see stuff like that and how it can cause issues. There is some things I see on Facebook that I don't get from people when I see them face to face, but I always just attribute that to internet balls. I don't know if yeah, of course, yeah. it's always easier in text. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I we talked about this earlier and. My my counterpoint to that, and I know you had a, a pretty good argument against it, but my counterpoint to that was uh, people always naturally filter themselves anyway, that uh, when I was much more active in online communities, I would go to an atheist forum and just talk with other atheists about atheist things. And every now and then, if a Christian showed up, we would either, you know, like rip into him if he was an asshole or, you know, sometimes have like decent moderate debates. But it was very much a, a social bubble and very insulated. And we knew that and we were OK with it. It's what we wanted. I think I think you just kind of hit on what makes it different is you knew it. You were aware of it when you were there. It was it's easy to recognize or at least easier to recognize as a social bubble as kind of outside of how the rest of the world talks, how the rest of the world thinks. And it's more a conscious choice instead of it being decided by some skeezy algorithm in some corporate headquarters what you should talk and think about. It's don't know why you got to diss on the algorithm, man. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it's a perfectly nice algorithm with a wife and two algorithm children. <laughs> so it's. I think it's related. Uh, there's been like concerns on Reddit that there's uh, non-user controlled uh, manipulation of like front page content. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what Inyash are describing is the difference between going to like r slash atheism versus like your front page being filtered without you being able to adjust that yeah. right and then and you're getting a skewed view of the world without knowing it exactly so i think that might be the the overall concern there is that if you're going first of all don't use facebook for news but if for some reason you are uh t- people might be going in anticipating that they're getting a somewhat balanced or proportional view and they're Probably not, right? I'm going to make a confession that I get most of my news from Facebook because the actual news that that I was at my parents just a week ago and they turned on the evening news. This is depressing. This is awful bullshit. I do not want this poured into my eyeballs every single fucking evening. So uh, when I do hear about things, it's generally because enough of my friends are talking about them that it has made its way to me. I get most of mine from either news alerts on my phone or from the NPR five minute uh, news. like new flash briefing from the digital assistant that if I say its name, it'll activate. So, yes. <laughs> um, and I, that, that updates like every hour. So a couple of days a day I can be like, Hey, what's my flash briefing? Oh, that updates every hour, every hour or two. I think. Oh, okay. I'll so, start checking it more often. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, like but yeah. And then that way, if there's something that I find interesting, I can dive into that. But yeah, you're right. Sitting and just watching the news. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. So I guess moving away from like Facebook and, and Reddit, there were some other f- really interesting examples of, how a consumer's right to either possess information or own information that they've stored digitally or manipulate information or other stuff digitally. Well, uh, I I totally want to get back to that because that is super interesting, but I don't want to move off Facebook just yet because what other option do we have for mass communication with our friends? 
I mean, the, the whole point of a social network is that more people are on it, the more useful it is. And so pretty much you're stuck with the best one or the largest one. Well, yes. <laughs> and optimally, there would be a... I mean, do we just have to put pressure on Facebook through legal or social means to not be dicks? Is that our only choice? The solution... I actually don't know what the solution is. The solution is to spend as much time as you can with companies that aren't doing this. If there's any alternative, you know, if there's any any other company, any other way you know to do this, whether it be even just a group messaging app to keep in contact with people, there are uh, a few very small open source projects that easily accomplish most of Facebook's useful side. But as you said, it really matters who your friends what network your friends are on. If they're not there, it's not of tremendous value. But the more we can push to these alternatives that are ethically correct or more ethically correct, the I think the better things will be in the future for literally everyone. And I think just the fact that those exist makes things a little better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what we really have to be careful of is those do exist for now. If you want to have a personal secure communication with someone, you still can. It's a lot of work and it's harder than it's a lot harder than you might believe to have a truly secure conversation with someone, but you still can today. And depending on how net neutrality rulings go and how ridiculously large Facebook continues to grow, it's not unreasonable to think that at some point you might not have the freedom to do that. And the sooner we can head that off, the better the better all of computers will be for the future. I personally uh when when Amazon came out with their e-reader, the Kindle, and uh, Barnes & Noble came without theirs, the Nook, even though the Amazon had a little bit more um, usability and breadth of scope, I went with the Nook because it doesn't have the f- terrible DRM on their stuff. All, all, Everything you got for the Nook was DRM-free. It's, it's kind of disappointing in that the Nook has more or less been outcompeted. They're not really supporting it as much anymore, but you can still buy all the eBooks you want off, uh, off Barnes & Noble without the DRM. And I think the fact that that, is, that did exist as an option, even though only like 5-10% of the marketplace maybe used it, is part of the thing that helped push Amazon into getting rid of their awful DRM. And I, I am glad to have helped support the cause for a little bit. Exactly. And I still gr- use the note because, I mean, it's just as good. That's a great example of just leaning towards the freer, better platform yeah. and how that can affect these big scary corporations but i do worry as you said that uh if the nook goes away entirely and or barnes and noble goes out of business or something there what what is the check on amazon at that point exactly yeah why wouldn't they go back to their crazy well and that for all falls under uh dmca law which is a huge complicated monstrosity that if we have time maybe we'll cover in the end but it's one of the big things that interferes with your own digi- your digital rights and your access to your access to your own software to your own hardware and to truly it's one of the things that really limits you from truly owning and controlling uh, your own machines. Yeah, it, it basically strips away what rights you have to your own stuff. It says that the things you have are not actually yours. It is is God? I hate the DCMA or DMCA. Yeah, yeah, Digital the, Millennium Copyright Act right. was passed back in the '90s and has been interfering with everything in computers since then. This is the one that uh, we talked about a few episodes ago that makes it so that uh, companies can make it illegal for people to change their own oil. Yeah, right? ex- absolutely. Uh, it let it interferes with everything. Because of the way additionally copyright law works, uh, you can put DMCA on, say, most anyone here has a computer. I mean, computer, a phone. If they, if they are listening to this without a computer, I am very impressed. It means someone has gone to the trouble of putting it on tape and handing it to them. <laughs> all right. All right. Everyone has a computer. Um, 
And there are certain parts of that computer that you bought and you own and you have in your possession right now that you can't look at legally. In fact, most of it, the entire operating system, the word processor, possibly even the web browser you're listening to this on if you're not on Firefox or, or Chrome, most of Chrome is open source, that are illegal for you to look at too hard, for you to investigate too hard, just for you to look into it is against DMCA law. Even though you possess it, you own it, and even more so, there's even hardware inside of a computer you own. There are certain chips that run mysterious black box code that you aren't allowed to look at because of DMCA law, even though you bought it. The, the thing that really uh, irritates me more than anything else is that you don't own it anymore. You, you don't own your stuff. You have paid money for the things and you're in physical possession of the things, but legally the ownership belongs to someone else and you are this person that they are deigning to allow its use for a limited period of time, mm-hmm. which they could yank away at any time if they wanted to. Exactly. And uh, there's a famous quote from Richard Stallman that says, um, either you own your software or your software owns you. Richard Stallman is a big advocate of open source software. It's a very transparent way to build software so that, so, so that, that you know what's in it so that you can't, uh, have either state actors or big corporate actors controlling how your software works and what it does instead of you controlling how it works and what it does. Exactly. Like, so I use, um, uBlock for my, my primary ad blocker. Ad, ad blocker yeah. And what I like about that is that it's open source and I haven't gone and looked at the code myself, but the idea is that other paranoid and savvy internet users can, and if there was something fishy about it, they would say, hey, look at this. And that's not the kind of access privilege that most people have to most of their software. And that's kind of terrifying. I wanted to get a clarification on something really quick. You mm. said word processors have occasionally black box code areas. Oh, where all of them, except for a few very open source projects. What on earth would they need that for, unless it was to explicitly for something nefarious? Well, for even wider, let's say all of Windows specifically sends back every single keystroke mouse movement and occasionally contents of screen to Microsoft. Ostensibly lets them debug and help improve the operating system for the future. But it's one of those things that can be very dangerous if that power were to be abused. I had no idea it sends that much data back. Oh yeah, to it was a fairly big, fairly big scam when Windows 10 came out. It was it's new in Windows 8 or Windows 10. They've started doing that, and it's obviously not all of them, but it can happen whenever it wants to. And and they have a legal right to that. And they do. You've because that's the we type of the product you have purchased. Mm-hmm. And there are alternatives to that. There, there are open source operating systems that don't do this. The Linux project is, you know, Linux. It's a huge, huge computational framework that most servers on the internet run because it's actually secure, secure against not just Microsoft, but even against state level actors. You can trust it not to be reporting to them because it is entirely open source code. It's improved by the community. It's watch, watchdog. No, it's... um. It's what, what's the term I'm looking for? Audited. It's audited by the community, and if there was anything fishy in it, more than likely someone would catch it, or more than likely someone would have fixed it. Because that's the other advantage of open source is usually almost anyone can post improvements. If you see something wrong with it, if you see a security vulnerability, anyone in the world they can they can submit the code to improve it themselves, which would be in their interest if they're running this open source code, which most anyone on the internet is. So it's it's a very good way to do things. You sent me a fascinating article about the importance of transparency in code. Uh, it was the Pacemaker article. 
where a woman uh, with a pacemaker likes to go jogging. And at one point she was going up a flight of stairs when all of a sudden she basically couldn't breathe. She started blacking out. It was like her entire body shut down on her. And uh, they rushed her to a hospital. Eventually, they figured out what the problem was, is that her pacemaker went above a certain threshold of heart rate. I forgot what it was, like 120 or 150. And it reset back down to 60 beats per minute, which is not nearly enough to support her body with the level of activity she was at. Uh, She was an engineer, so she started really looking into this pacemaker and all the code that runs it and so forth and found out that not only could she not see the code and not update it, but it had a wireless update capabilities so that the creator or or the, the owner of the pacemaker, the company, could push updates to it without her knowledge and without telling her what the updates did. And she had, first of all, a huge problem with that because she wants to know what the code inside of her body responsible for her living is doing. But also, this is now a vector of attack. If something can be wirelessly updated, it's not just the original owner that can update it. It's anyone with enough hacking skill to get into it. And she did not like the fact that anyone could hack into her heart. And that's a fantastic example. There's someone literally walking around with an implant keeping you alive, and she doesn't own it. Someone else owns it. Someone else has complete control over it, and they can do whatever they want with it. And that's that's absolutely ridiculous. There were a couple. There were stories a couple years ago about stuff like that, about uh, pacemaker security vulnerabilities and pacemaker hacking, and all of that's possible because the only people who know how this works are big medical corporation and whoever is sketchy enough to look into how to hack these things. So if let's say this, this woman wanted to shut down other people's pacemakers, she might be one of the only people who can, which is, uh, which is dangerous. And if she wanted to legally turn off the ability for her pacemaker to be hacked, she is, can't do that. No, that would be against the law. Yeah, she, she, she can't alter anything inside her body without breaking the law. And that, that is very dangerous. And that even brings us as the, as we progress and as our phones, you know, almost extensions of our minds as they are now. But as more and more of that possibility, more and more of that capability can become potentially integrated, potentially implanted in the future, it be it becomes very dangerous when a part of you isn't under your control. Yeah, like you're wearing a smartwatch right now, where some years away from not having to put a being able to t- attach it without a wristband, right? When that happens, I mean, the biometric data that your your Fitbit stores isn't yours. It's, I think you can look at some of it through your apps or whatever, but you don't, you don't get to uh, keep that information secure if you don't want to. Your yeah, you don't get to decide where it goes. Yeah. Someone else can access it. It could be subpoenaed by a court. It could be uh, distributed by Fitbit to its advertising partners. You have no idea who, where it goes. And even more so, a lot of the time what happens with this data is a lot of people end up with it who are not in your original target audience. So you say, sure, Fitbit can have that. Yeah, well, Fitbit shares it with a couple advertising partners. Uh, It shares it with your little toy app on your phone that gives you rewards for how much you walk. And they share it. And eventually, one of those people in that huge tree has a data breach. It just happens. It happens to everyone at some point. And then who knows who ends up with it? It was... Was it Aetna? One of the major health insurance companies recently got hacked and lost records. Not lost, but uh, the records were copied for like 112 million people, something like that. If you've been on the internet for any length of time, it is almost 100% certain that your data is in the hands of people that you did not expect to have it. And who don't legally have it, but have it nonetheless. Even if, even if you're on the internet, your data is probably in the hands of people that you didn't expect to have it because you clicked yes when you you know signed mm-hmm. up for a website or something. Yeah, which I mean is a whole other bag of worms that I 
Can he, we do anything about Eulas to make them not be fucking evil? That's that's sort of what I was going to try and get at, right? I mean, so on the one hand, the the corporation or whatever the the software that you're downloading that says explicitly in Azula, if someone dies or becomes injured, or if your company takes a a loss as a direct result of a failure in the software, it's not our fault. Yeah. That that sentence can show up in there on page 117 out of 250. And to be clear, they don't give you ironclad legal immunity. Right. You can still take them to court, and the courts will say, well, despite the fact that it says this in the EULA, we find that unconscionable, and you are responsible for this person's death. But it makes it a lot harder. You have to go through a lot more process and pay a lot more, and the outcome's uncertain. It's true. I mean, there there are protections like uh, you can't just declare yourself immune from negligence. Mm-hmm. So like even like if you're on the highway and there's one of those trucks with a, a one foot by six inch sign that says stay 250 feet back. We're not responsible for rock chips. Mm-hmm. First of all, you have to be 30 feet away from this truck to see that. But even if tr- even if rocks start flying off and breaking your windshield, that's still on them. They can't just declare themselves free from from that responsibility. But they, they can say they can and that might turn some people off or it might make it, it might give them some one level of resistance in court, right? Well, we told them they couldn't drive behind us. They should have just looked. Oh, Um, and just to clarify, uh, EULA is short for End User License Agreement, which is the thing that you nowadays have to click that you read, even though you didn't, and that you're okay with before you use almost any piece of software that exists. And to answer your question for what we can do about it, it's uh, what you can do about it is help help build these alternatives, help build alternatives that don't have big, scary, terrible EULAs on them and use them whenever possible. The more competition there is, the the more people who care about this, the more companies are going to have to listen to this is the right way to do this. And if they don't, hopefully these alternative projects can be large enough to be usable. Many of them are today. You know, Linux and OpenOffice and that whole branch are huge projects run by probably more than 50% of the computers in the world. I mean, all of Android is a Linux branch. Oh. I did not realize that. And at its core, it's an open, secure operating system, but Android has a whole layer of all of Google's schmoo on it. Uh, and because of the way uh, free software works, actually, by doing that, Google has to update the true open source project Android is based off of. It's called the Android Open Source Project, which is a very nice, very secure, not corporate controlled and not as data leaking operating system you can run on many phones today if you want to avoid that kind of scary EULA, corporate controlling, freedom infringing behavior. And the more people do that, the more pressure it puts on other companies to behave. So some of the, some of the terminology being thrown around sounds kind of like fear mongering. And either can we explain why that isn't fear mongering, but in fact, this is as terrifying as it sounds, or can we just say like for the average user, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I like being able to go to Amazon and seeing on the front page there, oh, look, an author I like has a new book out. I'm not sure whether even if I bought the previous author's book on Amazon or where maybe I liked it on Facebook or something, who knows. The perception is that even if they they do have all this information, they're just using it to try and target ads, which I'm like the only person I've met who's kind of okay with that. Uh, No, I love that fact that I will sometimes hear about a band that I like and that isn't very popular coming to my town. Right. I'm like, this is, I, I would pay for this service. I'm glad I get it for free. Yeah, and that's kind of actually what you were saying earlier, Inyash, which is the this is providing a service. It is helpful, uh, and that that's one of the big... That's how these companies, that's how they defend themselves. That's what they say they're doing. And in the large part, yes, they are. It is a very handy service, but to me, they're not nearly as transparent as they should be about this. This should be big red text first when you come on, which is we're we're collecting all sorts of things about you in very subtle ways, very technical ways. You know, we can track what websites you go to from here, what you do before you come here, all sorts of things. 
and they don't. They don't really share that. They don't. Consumers don't really know that, and people might change the behavior if they did. It surprised me. It's already changed my behavior a little bit when you told me the quote-unquote private conversation I'm having with someone in Facebook Messenger is seen not only by me and the person I'm talking to, but uh, Facebook and their system for determining what words I'm going to type next or something. Sure, yeah. And yeah. all their advertising partners are going to use that to help uh, target advertisements at me, like by personal conversation, which is feels weird. I don't mind them doing that for things I post on Facebook, my wall itself, but the things I'm talking about with other people being scanned as well starts to feel weird. Yeah, and most of those personal chats, as far as I know, aren't I don't think are shared with advertisers yet, but Facebook certainly keeps track of all of them. They use it for all sorts of learning algorithms on what they do. That's actually all outlined in their privacy policy if you read to page God knows what. Mm. But it's not only that. Uh, in these personal conversations, you also have, well, the f- keyboard on your phone is reporting back to Google. It's analytics if you have an, uh, if you have an Android or Apple if you have an Apple. Uh, on top of that, the operating system on your phone is keeping track of these, and that might be controlled by Google. So now Google and Facebook have it. And if you go even a step further, which not too long ago would have been called a conspiracy theory, as of when did Assange first do his big leaks? 2014? It's been a few years now. I don't remember exactly when. I feel like it's longer ago than that, but who knows? Yeah. It's not super important. So what would have been called conspiracy theories up until quite recently uh, is that literally the government has access to this. The uh, There were big reveals on you know the whole NSA phone tapping, the metadata collection, the interference with computers as they are. And that's the thing that happens. And not only does it happen, it's incredibly widespread it is actually extremely difficult to have a truly secure conversation with anyone nowadays to a a ridiculous degree. There was a time, and I think this was known uh, even before the Assange uh, WikiLeaks thing. Uh, Oh, wait, that was Snowden. Sorry. Or Well, Snowden worked with Assange, though. Yeah, no, but uh, sorry. The government for a long time actually forced chip manufacturers to put code in their firmware that what it reported back to them or did something with their data. That was actually an even worse example. So one of the the arguments, like we were just saying, if you want to have a secure conversation, all right, don't use Facebook Messenger. Don't use your Android phone controlled by Google. Use the hardware you own and that you bought and that doesn't go through any corporation that you're privately emailing directly to another person. It doesn't go through anyone's server but yours and theirs. And you say, yeah, sure, that should be completely secure. And it's still not, because there was a uh, what's called the equation group malware. Uh, it's the NSA's, although arguably the CIA's, no one really knows. It did a whole lot of things. It was ostensibly built to help counter Iranian nuclear threats, but at some point it ended up on 30-something percent of all computers in the world. And what it would do is if it saw you encrypting something, so you could send it securely to someone else without it being read by any intermediate parties, it would weaken that encryption. It would see the encryption key go to the hard drive of your computer and subtly rewrite it. And that's on your computer that you bought that doesn't go through any server, no EULAs, no nothing, that should be a secure communication that still isn't. It was literally on the hardware itself. Yeah, it was It was on a chip Came in, on Coming the out of the plant that way. And Which comp- is, I heard, one of the reasons that uh, many governments now consider it part of national security policy to be able to create their own hardware in the c- country. Absolutely. One of the only... Because you can't trust hardware that you get from the U.S. One of the only uh, secure computers you can buy today is sold by uh, Richard Stallman at the Free Software Foundation. It's a 
early 2000s ThinkPad. It's one of the only laptops that doesn't have a huge block of mysterious code running in a chip you have no control over and aren't allowed to look at. Lest we come off sound like conspiracy theorists, we'll link to all this stuff on the, the episode description. Yeah. Well, just because this, well, my first time being exposed to this, I'm just like, this sounds like, right? it sounds like you should sounds be wearing like a madness. tinfoil hat. This right? can't be real. No, this no, can't happen this in a real like functional well known society. Now. It, was, it, was, it was reported on at NPR and various news media outlets when it became yeah. known. And even more recently, as of, as, of data, as of this recording, just a few days ago, uh, WikiLeaks has posted a bunch of, as of yet, technically unverified uh, leaks about CIA internal operations that detail CIA's extensive research into uh, interfering with uh, automotive computers, into interfering with hardware manufacturer for personal computers, and a huge set of spying tools to interfere with what should be secure communication between you and another party. So what is it that they do? What do you mean? Well, the new one that just came out on WikiLeaks. I'm not sure I can answer that. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure I know enough detail. It just came out just a few days ago and I haven't read all of it. But the newest one was a set of tools, a set of data collecting tools, mostly. So for places like Facebook that either have this publicly or privately shared or for Google, a set of tools that can let them scour everything accessible to compile as much information about a single person as you can. So you say, oh, it's not bad. Fitbit has this. It's not bad. Facebook has this part. It's not bad that my Alexa has this part of my history. But you start mushing that all together and you can come up with a lot of information about a person they may not have meant to share. And a lot of the more recent tools are that, but that even stacks with the additional information they have from what should be secure computers. I've got a fun tie-in. Since you name-dropped the Amazon Home Assistant, the one in the corner activated and was listening, mm-hmm. I remember reading something a few weeks ago, maybe a few months, where it was either an actual terrorist or a suspected one. Somebody was trying to get the as much conversation as they could from Amazon that was stored on their Amazon Home Assistant. The the Echo, I don't want to say its other name because it will start talking in the background. And they were, as far as I could see, unable to. So like Amazon just really didn't store much. Like so when you when you say, when you use the activation word, it'll store what you say after that until it starts processing what you said. And then it won't save anything else, at least that anyone could find in this one thing. Yes, uh, so firstly, there are certain things, there are many things that could be captured because the keyword isn't just Amazon home. As you, as you guys know, you have one. Uh, there are a couple things that can wake it up. A fair number of words that can wake it up accidentally. Ooh. Home is one of them. Is it? Right. What about, um, um, assassinating the president? Well, no, it's not ostensibly according to Amazon and the EULA, no, but as crazy as it sounds, we don't know if that's the only thing running on that. You don't have the right to look into it and make sure the only st- software running on it is Amazon's. For all you know, anyone's could be. It could be a compromised system by a kid down the street or by a foreign state, and there's really no way to know because you don't have control over it. You have to trust that Amazon kept it secure and that it's in their interest to do that. And Amazon might not even know. And it, it might not, they might not have a real strong incentive to work really hard to secure this because no one cares. No one raises an issue about this. So So it's more than just, just Amazon having it. For sure. And that's, it is something to think about. And I know that we've talked about this before, but just because it might be on someone else's mind, it might just be, might not just be me. What is, as long as I'm not talking about doing anything illegal, why do I, what, why would I want to have a private conversation? I mean, that's, that sounds like a stupid question, except let's say if I was like, well, you know what? I'm okay with something looking over all my, my Facebook conversations just to see if there's any keywords that pop up and, you know, maybe not saving everything else. Maybe who knows, because I'm concerned about my national security. 
And because, so I'm willing to sign that away. And because they're not doing anything bad to me right now, I'm kind of fine with that. I think that's the, the steel man position for this really is national security, right? There's right. no one's coming out and saying it. Yeah, we're doing it because we're, you know, they're not mustache twirling, you no, know, if we can catch, su- super villains, if right? If we can touch, catch one terrorist, it makes worth violating all these rights. Totally, totally correct. Well, I think that's more or less their articulation, maybe some, some keywords in or out of there, right? <laughs> What is the comeback to that? So, like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything illegal. Why do I care? If Facebook reads my my messenger conversations. Hmm. <laughs> did I did I accidentally win? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the risk always is. Uh, it's it's the same reason a police require a warrant for a wiretap, or police require a warrant to come into your home and investigate what you're doing. There are fundamental freedom of speech and freedom to have a functional democracy. Reasons why this has to be this way, and those same. Those same needs continue into the digital domain. The same needs to a reasonable level of privacy. I actually really wish I could articulate those offhand, but... It does seem like privacy is a thing that most people just want instinctively. I hear a lot of celebrities are unhappy about the fact that uh, they don't have very much privacy in their lives, even though if they aren't doing anything illegal, why should they care, right? But it, it does feel like the same kind of thing where if there's a cop standing in your house at all times watching to make sure you aren't breaking any laws, someone could say, well, if you aren't breaking any laws, what's the big deal? You got nothing to hide. But on the other hand, just having someone there constantly with the threat of violence in case you fuck something up can be extremely stressful. And I would yeah. assume, you know, even bad for your health. I completely it's, agree with you guys. I just wanted to get that conversation. No, out there. I think that's a really good question. And I wish I could better come up with the term for why that's so dangerous to have that police officer always standing in your living room to, del- to the I extent mean, that we're talking about safer you you, yeah. would, you would never assault someone while that police officer yeah. is always yeah. there yeah so like celebrities you know or anybody has has the rights to um like it's illegal i think in most states to try and take pictures through someone's window if they're inside their house yeah. you know if their front door is open or if they're on their lawn that's where like paparazzi pictures come out of, of famous people or something but the idea that I'm at home, this is my space, I'm going to do what I want here, and I don't want to worry about looking bad if, you know, whatever whatever it is, right? Whether I'm doing anything illegal or not, I just don't want to have to look glamorous in case someone posts this picture online. I should be allowed to say, no, that's you guys can't have that picture. But as far as like making things safer, you know, we talked about before some parts of the United States, like certain intersections especially, but I, my understanding is that in large parts of the United Kingdom, there's like surveillance cameras all over the place, and they're they're not at least the ones that people see aren't like hidden secret ones. They're just like, you know, on street lamps or whatever. I mean, they might act as a bit of a deterrent because people will say, Oh, if I mug this person, that camera will see me, but they also act as a way to like corroborate your story. It's kind of why people like uh, police body cams. Right. So that in that way, there's, there's uncontestable accountability saying, no, no, look at three thirteen, I was mugged by this ATM. You can check the camera. I guess what I'm getting at is that sort of ties into people don't have this expectation of privacy when they leave their house. Right. Right. And that's an example of laws that made a lot of sense in the past and don't make quite as much sense now because it makes a lot of sense. Sure. You're outside your house. You're you have no expectation of privacy. We are allowed to watch you, uh, you know, track you, see what you're doing. And that makes enough sense, except as technology evolves and as things change, we end up with this situation where instead of just being able to look at you or being one person being able to see what you're doing, we can now aggregate all of the video data of everything you did in that entire day down to the minute. And Hopefully, that will only be used to do good for the citizens. But at some <laughs> point, you are trusting a, a branch of your government with all of this information about you. And you start aggregating this from not just webcam, but from all of this information they have illegal and, may, illegal and legal access to. 
and it becomes it be it becomes a dangerous amount of information. Uh, it, it, it's one of those what's what's the what's that well quoted stat? I'm not actually sure if it's true, but that the average person commits a felony a day, mm-hmm. uh, and that under perfect observation, you could put anyone in jail. Mm-hmm. And you it's, it's, living in a state, you know, living under laws like that is very dangerous. You can put anyone away you want to at any time without them having committed a specific crime, without them having committed any more crime than the neighbor, you can put them away because you just have the ability to look it up. Yeah, because everything's... uh, Because everyone's against some some law. It's... it's, uh, I don't remember exactly which reporter it was, but uh, there's a reporter that uh, followed cops around for a while, and apparently the cops in this particular precinct have a game called... They call it the 10-minute game. Anytime someone is riding around with them to see what they do, they uh, tell them, pick out any car at random you want at any time, and within 10 minutes, I'll be able to pull them over for something. And it's never failed, apparently. They, someone sure. just points out a car, the cop follows him for 10 minutes, and eventually something happens, they're like, you're pulled over. And that, I mean, that's, you can do that same thing. There's so many laws out there. Everyone is breaking something at some point. At that point, I start to really get worried about our legal system because it means that basically the only reason you're not in jail is because you haven't pissed off the right people. Exactly. And that's, that's not the right way to run things. <laughs> yeah. In that case, the, in, in a society like that, your only uh, point of defense is not to come to the attention of the powerful. Don't do anything that would piss off someone. And I think we all agree we don't want to live in that society. No. Where it's not safe to rock the boat even a little. Yeah. Uh, I think the other, the main comeback about, you know, unsecure communication, whether it's, nef- whether you're doing anything nefarious or not, there's no such thing as like a backdoor that only the trustworthy agent has access to. So even if, even if we lived in, in a, in a world where we just, we had a a national security agency that we were all just all behind. We said, Hey, they're, we know that they're super trustworthy. No one in that, that industry has done anything bad. And even uh, if it's like the mythological version of Jesus himself in charge mm -hmm, of it. mm -hmm. Right. Um, and this isn't, I'm not making a jab at the NSA, but you could just say that even if you're on board with everything they're doing, there's no such thing technologically as giving only them a backdoor to your stuff. Exactly. Once you weaken it like that, you you fundamentally compromise its security. To to anybody who has the time and and money and effort to go in and and figure it out. So like people will put like sticky notes on their cameras and their computers. Um, Not everybody, but some people will. And then carry a phone in their pocket. Right. And then carry (laughs) a phone in their pocket with a microphone and everything. Right. So like, I'm not super worried about some NSA agent looking at me and my, uh, you know, watching me read on my computer. Right. But if I, was in a different circumstance and maybe if I was trying to avoid a stalker or, you know, if I was a celebrity that I didn't want people looking, you know, that's basically being stalked all the time. Right. So it's not just the NSA person looking at your computer. It's anybody, once the back door is open, it's not just like one person can look in. You don't even have to worry about, about doing something illegal. It's just about kind of wanting to be able to mind your own business and have people stay out of your business for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and today we still have options to do that. It is still, possible to communicate securely but that if we if we don't watch it carefully we may lose that and is that because of the dmca well no no i mean to some degree yes it's one of the things that makes it easier to enforce but it's just because of the way communications move today as everyone moves up to facebook and off of their own personal computers that you control oh it becomes harder and harder to do you move to android you move to as more and more computation is done in the cloud exactly exactly I feel like I hit all the points I, I was thinking of. Yeah, and and just to just to counter just a little bit further, uh, a, a good example would be depending. It depends a lot on who has access to this data. So if it's all logged by your perfect NSA, even if we assume there's a magical way to do it without invalidating the security of all software, how long is it before you're in a trial for 
who knows, a speeding ticket, a something really minimal, and someone can pull up a recording you said four years ago in your home about, hey, wouldn't it be funny if Donald Trump's hair caught fire and he died of it? <laughs> and bam, you've now broken a whole other set of laws. Like, it, it, it's very important who has access to this. That reminds me, you did bring us something really interesting last time we talked about this, which was if I'm arrested for something, uh, say, say if I'm being charged with murder, mm. the police can go... Uh, to my whatever my cell provider and figure out where I was at all times for as far back as they think is necessary. But it's apparently, you said it was either way harder or impossible for like my defense lawyer to do the same thing. Yeah, uh, because one of uh, a lot of police agencies not only can go subpoena that from the wireless provider, which may or may not have it, but a lot of them now recently have been deploying their own, basically it's a hacking device. It's a fake cell tower that your phone can connect to as it drives by that they own. And they say, oh, look, this cell phone's right here. And because of the way the E911 system works, your phone will report its location to that fake cell tower immediately. And they have access to that because it's their device. And you and your defense lawyer very much don't. That's weird that, I mean... Stingray system, right? Stingray system. Hey, and that's horrifying. just recently, they require a warrant for that. Up until now, they don't even. That's, that's when it first came to my attention was when I heard that warrants are now required for this. I was like, oh, this was a thing before, <laughs> and it didn't right? need a warrant. And so that's interesting. Like, with no probable cause, you could be put under that level of investigation. And but what, what to me really blew my mind is that the prosecution can go get this information pretty much really easily. I guess now they need a warrant, but I mean, that's not super hard to get depending on what the warrant's for. But if that information could exonerate me, I can't get that from my lawyer. I no, mean, no. that's insane. Because if that information's out there and it's from my stuff, I mean, this is, like, this is what really drives me. Uh, like, that's really what drives this issue home for me, this whole umbrella of, of digital rights, is that if my phone can tell me, yeah, at 3.30 last night, Stephen was, in fact, at home watching Netflix and playing, you know, Clash of Clans on his phone, we can see everything from where he's at. Therefore, he couldn't have committed this murder in, you know, two cities over. So, uh, but that, that, that blows my mind. Yeah, why, why, yeah. why isn't that information um, easily, yeah. easy to find for my defense? I, I mentioned this uh, earlier when we were talking. The, the one that I find really crazy is the, uh, again, it's a pacemaker one. The one where a guy is being charged for uh, insurance fraud for burning down his own house to collect the insurance. There's a recording of him calling 911 saying, ah, oh, my house is on fire, blah, blah, blah. And they're all worried about uh, putting on a pretty good show about it. Police went and accessed the data from his pacemaker and they saw that his heart rate at the time was not very elevated. It was basically a resting heart rate. And they said, look, there is no way someone who's actually panicked about a fire happening has a heart rate that low. He is probably not even in the house at this point. So uh, they're using that as part of their prosecution that he very obviously was not actually in panic or fear for his life. And if you were to try to do that the other way around, you aren't going to get your pacemaker data from the company that holds it. You don't have the power to subpoena them and get that and see, be like, look, you say I was murdering someone at 2 a.m. last night, but here is the data from my pacemaker that shows I have a resting heart rate and I was probably asleep at that moment. I certainly was not stabbing the shit out of some dude. Hmm. So that the, the fact that they have access to that information and they will use it to prosecute you, but you do not get access to it to defend yourself is something that very much bothers me. It's That's pretty mind-blowing. I mean... Again, this whole thing of like they have access to it. And I know who they are, like that we're talking about. But it, this is this is probably the most tinfoil hat conversation that I that I that I can fully get behind. Well, and um, I was actually going to ask. Um, I'm not entirely sure the laws on medical data whether you can subpoena that and and a prosecutor can or can't. I'm not entirely sure how that works. Okay. Um, 
you think they may have been going past their legal reach and it might get thrown out? No, no, I think they can. I'm just not sure if you can't. Ah, I'm not sure okay. if that's the case. I haven't actually looked up this specific case. I'd be really curious to see it, though. I mean, this also could just show that the guy knows how to keep his cool under pressure, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, maybe he's just super zen, and he's like, all right, well, panicking won't help. Right. So, I'm, and I mean, also, your heart would be elevated if you're faking a fire, too, right? Or if you're Probably faking, if you're faking a, an accidental fire. I but, know. And I guess back to the point you were making is it, he should have access to that without any question. He shouldn't have to go hire a lawyer and file legal documents with the medical company providing this it's his he owns it it's in his body mm-hmm. it's madness that that's the only way he has to access his own data and i think really the 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 home driving point for this too is that as we we alluded to earlier with you know smart watches and other other things i mean phones are are definitely there but the second phones stop being external and something some parts of the phone you know whether it's an, an implanted fitbit or you know a pacemaker is a very early version of this we're we're well on the way to getting you know technology in our bodies in our brains, mm-hmm. and if if there isn't some reform between now and then, you can get a software push to your brain chip that does God knows what right. right. How and, long is and, it going to be until you don't actually own your own body? Yeah, yeah. Someone, some corporation has legal rights to it, and you have to abide by whatever they decide. Yeah, that's terrifying. The most invasive thing that I can think of as far as brain stuff is they can treat Parkinson's with like a deep implant that does. Uh, I think it activates dopamine. Yeah, the deep uh, brain stimulation, low voltage things. Exactly. I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's out of my... I'm just not finding the word. I don't know if that's even the kind of thing that has remote update capability or not. It's, I wouldn't want it to. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> want it to either, but I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge that if for whatever reason there's a, a better version... For example, that first woman with the heart with the pacemaker, mm-hmm. the idea that for whatever idiot reason it has a governor at 120 beats a minute or 150, whatever it is, and then it just tanks to 60, that sounds like a bug. And it probably was a bug. Yeah, so like the idea that they could fix that without having to crack my chest open sounds great, mm-hmm. right? But I should be fully in the loop. And the idea that that kind of reasoning and privacy on behalf of the product owner, not you, could work for something like a brain implant is kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, you remember Mm -hmm. how much people, I don't know if you remember, but I remember how much some people I know freaked out when Windows pushed the uh, Windows 10 update onto Mm -hmm. their computers and they didn't want it. They wanted their old Windows still. Like, how much worse is it when a company pushes their update into your chest when you didn't (laughs) want it? Or worse, Microsoft, for whatever corporate interest, whatever corporate reason that's not yours, they could decide, oh, we're done with Windows, off. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then the, it's not in their interest to do so, but the fact that they legally can is worrying, and it should be. So we are uh, rounding close on when we should be wrapping up-ish. Did you want to talk about the DMCA a bit? Mm, I think we've covered it fairly well. Okay. Yeah, it's dangerous. Uh, the only thing I wanted to bring up is fantastic organization that's really helping get this legal ground pushed into the modern age is the electronic frontier foundation their charity that fights a lot of big legal cases they fight patent trolls they fought a case not too long ago uh that allowed podcasts to be recorded and distributed which was there someone was, was a media company was there was uh, actually yeah they were trying to uh they claiming that they have a right on the concept of of what a podcast even does yeah. recording content and then giving it to people broadly uh, then it was fought because uh, someone managed to find back like in the 80s a group that had made just a cassette tape recording of, of a, sort of like a podcast, it's on a cassette tape, and they would record, you know, lots of copies of it and then pass them out to their friends and various subscribers across the city or the state. And the EFF was like, see, precedent, this company was not the first one to do it. It was this small group in Kansas or wherever. And yeah, but the fact that 
for a little while, it was the very concept of a podcast was in jeopardy. Something that is so simple and fundamental and not something a corporation can like claim they invented, you know, uh, was madness. My favorite example of patent trolls, and I can't remember which two corporations were having a, a, a peeing contest about this, but it was uh, who owns the tablet. Mm. And there was some back and forth. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but my understanding was that uh, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, there's a tablet on like one of the computer chairs or something. And they're like, <laughs> concept existed before, before either of us. God. I, yeah. Apparently on Apple products, you can't get swipe on your keyboard. Or just um, swipe your finger around. I certainly don't have a swipe. I don't know if I can't get it, but probably not. Yeah, if, yeah. It's, if somebody owns that. And but that's fair. Like that—that's a recent development that someone built and patented and did, and that's fair enough. We're not talking about someone trying to patent the idea of an online shopping cart, which is a yes. famous patent troll that tried to shut down basically every vendor on the entire internet. Anyone who couldn't pay the huge legal fees to fight it was just. Well, well, too bad. Give us half your money. Yeah, and I love the EFF. I heart them. They're doing God's work, and they are one of the charities that I donate to annually. Uh, I think that's yeah. I think that about summarizes it. Um, I did have a question. You guys mentioned DRM a few times. What does that stand for, and what exactly is that? <laughs> it stands for Digital Rights Management, and that is how companies get to say that uh, I own this block of information, and I will try to lock it down in any way that I can. Uh, there's a famous XKCD comic about it where uh, you buy something and it has DRM on it. And then eventually you want to transfer it to somewhere or you want to use it on a different device or something. And you can't because the DRM blocks you from doing that. So then you have to go and pirate a copy. And so now you have a pirated copy of the thing you purchased legally and you're a uh, felon. Right. Or you can just pirate it anyway and you have broken the same laws and you have the same product, but you haven't paid the money for it. So it's basically a way to punish people who have legally bought a product. Yeah, the is DMCA what it comes down is to. a subset of DRM. Okay. Yeah, actually, I remember back in the day when I still bought DVDs, I would... I had to use a piece of illegal software to burn it onto my computer so I could put it on my mobile device. Or DRM is what makes it so that if you buy a book or back when they were uh, using DRM on their stuff, if you buy an electronic book from Amazon, you can only read it on an Amazon-created device or an Amazon-licensed device. Uh, if you leave the country and they notice that because your device pings their servers all the time and you go someplace where they have not allowed you to read the thing, they will delete it off your phone. Oh, that was that case that you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they will just take stuff off, off your thing. So what is, I mean, okay. And it makes it really I, hard to access your things sometimes. A lot of DRM is just yeah. shitty. <laughs> and, and we haven't even gotten into, uh, especially in future tech, you know, you talk about consciousness expanding phones and how much you offload onto them. Yeah. And then it starts to get even worse when you're, you know, a significant portion of how you think where you store a lot of your data isn't under your control. It just it just gets so much worse, so much faster. You mean you don't have to remember nearly as much as you used to anymore. You just have to be able to find it again on the mm -hmm, internet. Mm -hmm. The Google is like outsourcing of your brain now. It's a repository of lots of information. Well, a lot of that, I mean, is done, I guess, even more literally than that, too. I mean, I don't know how many, I have a thousand or so pictures on my phone, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that, and then that way, it's kind of a record, it's a much more uh, detailed record than what I could remember myself. So I'm, I'm sort of outsourcing that memory, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I can go back and get it later with more reliability. For a kind of visceral example of what we're talking about, imagine if every time you crossed, you crossed a border, you got on a plane, every time you're pulled over by a police officer, he's like, all right, let me see all of your phone. Mm. I want to see every picture you took. I want to see everywhere you've been. I want to see every text you've sent. Every sext you've sent 48 hours in the last 
all of recorded digital history. And you can see even today, just the way we use phones now, how bad that would be. And it will only get worse as we use them for more and more things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't have to Gmail, your phone links to your Facebook links to everything that is you. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to be a criminal to not want a cop to be able to see your sex, right? So, or your, your dirty pictures you're sharing with somebody or even the business documents that you have sent back and forth through email. That's true. Most business documents nowadays are sent through email. All my legal proceedings are going back and forth through email right now. That's just, I mean, the alternative is mailing it, which I mean, arguably is even way less secure, right? So, (laughs) but if people were, if, if it was, if someone was opening all of your mail, copying it, putting it in an obscure database somewhere else, resealing and sending back to you without telling you, you'd be like, that's absolute madness. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that's somehow accepted once it goes digital is just ridiculous. That's a really good analogy to bring it home. And the same questions could have been brought up. You know, why do you care if the government's looking at the mail you're sending out? It's like, because it's my shit. Well, so like... The, and we, we have this mental image that, you know, countries and times where that happened, th- those are not desirable those places not to live, places right? To no. So, and yet we live in those places now if I'm sending you an email. You were saying something about uh, not wanting to concentrate power into a single uh, entity? That kind of the point of democracy is to keep power diffuse? Yeah, and that's, that, that brings us even deeper into tinfoil hat territory where uh, you end up with that whole late stage capitalism, ultra powerful corporation. Uh, what's the who, what sci-fi author built an amazing world out of that? Neil Stephenson built oh. an amazing world out of ridiculous capitalistic cyber dystopia. Uh, oh, are just, you talking Snow Crash? Among others, but the, okay. everything in that universe, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Snow you know, Crash was kind of awesome. Snow, the world in Snow <laughs> Crash was awesome. Yeah. The story was well, no, horrible, just so bad. <laughs> but wouldn't but you? The world is amazing. Wouldn't it be kind of neat to be able to move to a gated neighborhood that had different laws from the neighborhood the next one over, so you could choose what laws you wanted to live under? Yes. But at what cost? I haven't read the books, but I'm assuming that there's some monkey paw side effect here well, to it's, where... Well, it's the, the ultra-far liberalism. Uh, fire starts, and three fire trucks are there in seconds, because they each own their own satellite that watches for fires, right? And they all walk up to the clipboard and bid, all right, I'll put it out for 10 grand, I'll put it out for five, and that's, that's not a terribly efficient way to run a government. We're well into... Uh, just talking about fun books now, but yeah. <laughs> Anything else we guys want to talk about? I, I feel like we, we covered a bit of this. Um, we talked about ways to combat some of this, some of these problems. I think I'm out of questions. Donate to the EFF. That's great. And the other comp, uh, the other place you're talking about was FSF. Yeah. Uh, the FSF, well, the FSF built a lot of the free software we use today. They're big advocates for it. Um, but the biggest thing is just be aware of this. Uh, be aware of what information they're collecting, voice your opinions, tell, tell, companies you don't want this done and choose the companies that do it the least uh if if you can get linux up on a computer so you can at least have one you know safer place to safer place to have stuff but these are all just you know the more options we keep the more likely we'll still be able to keep them into the future because we still have these options now and we might not always would you guys like to help me with some listener feedback sure let's do it Chase, How does that work with the guest? You can weigh just, in for fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're there on your own opinions. And now, listener feedback with special guest star Chase Barkley. Guest star. I yes. feel so honored. <laughs> uh, so this is from Gad Bibay, maybe? Gad Bibay? On uh, the Reddit. In defense of Aristotle, it occurred to me that you might have not have checked the claim that Aristotle didn't check his claim about women having fewer teeth. So I looked into it some more. My first finding is that Aristotle, accidentally or not, might be correct. The mean number of teeth is slightly lower in women due to a higher prevalence of hypodondia in women of European descent. It also came across this essay on 
uh, Aristotle and it links to an essay called Rescuing Aristotle, which makes the good point that when Aristotle made his claim about women having fewer teeth, he said, it is well known that women have fewer teeth due to observations that people have made. Like he was basing his claim on actual historical observations at the time. And also the average number of teeth people had back before dentistry was probably highly variable. <laughs> In a lot of his writing, it's, it's pointed out that he is fairly up on empiricism, even if he doesn't personally do it. And the author of the essay made a great point saying, uh, asking the reader personally, if the reader is male, do you have a significant other in your life? So, let's, Stephen, do you have a significant other in your life that is female? Yes. Have you ever counted the teeth in her head? No. Do you think she has as many teeth as you do? I do. But <laughs> I, now I'm going to... So, when you said that, that someone actually checked and that there might be some truth to that, I, I, I had to suppress laughter. That, I mean, that, that's hilarious. And that if that's, if that's true... That's that's only possible in the modern world to do. Well, I mean, but it, but it could be that if he did check, if this was a quirk of like Europeans 2000 years ago, yeah. if that's true, that's hilarious. Cause I always use that as my example of him not being a good empiricist. Yeah. But no, I mean, I will, I will count her teeth when I get home. I, <laughs> I, I think it's a good example of, of people, uh, being kind of hypocritical because I have also quoted that. And yet, uh, of the various people that I have been intimate with, I have never counted their teeth. And I simply accept that the professionals in our society, the dentists and the educated people have counted teeth and know these things and have transferred this information to me correctly. And so I'm basically going on the exact same assumption that Aristotle was going on. Shit. That the professionals <laughs> in his time knew what they were talking about. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for pointing that out. And uh, I will look into that and see how that looks today. We have from Googleplex Byte, also on the subreddit, free speech isn't necessarily the optimal means of achieving the benefits its supporters espouse. As an ordo liberalist, I feel a system of competitive speech would be superior, which like was kind of mind blowing to me that there is a competitive speech system. Ordo liberal theory holds that the state must create a proper legal environment for the economy and maintain a healthy level of competition through measures that adhere to market principles. Similarly, it holds that the state should not just create a system that allows a free exchange of information in the form of free speech, but creates an environment for competitive speech. Uh, the belief is that an optimal competitive market for information would be the best means of providing perfect information. This is relevant to the stance of balancing free speech against hate speech, as another tenant of an optimally competitive market is having no negative externalities. Which is a damn good point. Hate speech has some negative externalities, right? So, uh, in a competitive market for information, hate speech would be information with negative externalities, thus it would be the duty of the state to uh, eliminate it or to offset those externalities through a Pigovian tax. And Pigovian tax, for people who aren't familiar with the term, is a tax on things that have negative externalities to account for that and pay back the people who are harmed by it. I mean, that sounds, like, especially given the context of today's conversation, like a very slippery slope. It, Criticizing the executive branch of the government could have negative externalities and make people be less patriotic, less people sign up for the military, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to tax you every time that you say, I don't like the current administration. We're going to send you a bill for $1,000. I right. mean, I'm obviously strawmanning, but that sounds like a not implausible. That sounds like free speech for the really rich. Yeah. The idea of taxing or otherwise disincentivizing uh, speech with bad externalities seems to have its own bad externalities. Yeah, and I think then there would be very costly legal battles going back and forth constantly as to what creates negative externalities and what doesn't and how much how bad the negative externalities are. Keep in mind that those negative externalities are already punished, just not financially. Yeah. If I go outside and I say I hate 
insert race here, somebody's going to call me a fucking asshole. Someone else isn't going to give me a job. Someone else is going to possibly hit me in the face, I think, in the context of the episode. Right. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're already violent, but I, I, I support the nonviolent uh, disincentives to being an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose it depends on your society. There's some societies where saying I hate race blank will actually get you praise and, and positive rewards. But in that society, I don't think, I don't know if the government would be against you either if you said that. I mean, I, I guess it comes down to forging a decent society and the fact that we don't necessarily trust a distant, large, powerful government to do it for us. Yeah, I think that that's sort of the takeaway, at least from my perspective as well, right? So yeah, it, it was a very neat thought and I kind of like it because I'm a fan of markets and obviously a fan of governments doing things to correct for massive market failures like negative externalities. But it seems like that would be very ripe for abuse for anyone who wanted to stifle speech. That's what I'm wondering is that the externalities of controlling all of that or punishing it systematically seems like it would have enough downsides to make it not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's possible that it could work, but I think that it would be a bigger shift to get all the way there from where we are now than just to basically do what we're doing now uh also on the whole punching nazis thing nazis thing not without incident says it's not clear to me when violence is appropriate or necessary avenue for social change can everything be achieved non-violently it doesn't seem to be what we've seen historically with many positive changes requiring at least the threat of violence which i think i touched on as well during that episode about uh how i feel like the black panther movement made a big difference for the civil rights and it does seem to be the case that there does have to be a threat of violence to change things, which is really unfortunate and sad. And I don't want to be on board with violence because of that. But I don't know. How, how do you feel about this case, Stephen? No. And can you paraphrase exactly what the... That, that, that it seems like just demanding things nonviolently often doesn't work and there has to be some threat of violence as well. Oh yeah, that's, that's sort of change. That's sort of where we came down on in the feedback episode, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, the example, I liked the one with the Trail of Tears example or like Japanese internment camps in the 40s. I mean, at some level, just saying, I disagree with this isn't enough. And I think people are going to have to draw their own lines to when they're ready to pick up a weapon and go, you know, go violently defend with their beliefs. I think I, I'm not really... I'm not equipped for myself to even anticipate where I draw that line, certainly where I, where I would say you should draw the line here too, right? I guess the main thing we're saying is that this line is the place where the line is being drawn currently at it is okay to punch anyone who ide- identify as a Nazi is a bad line and we're trying to push against that. We're saying put your line a little bit further down the road. This is not a good place for it. This is leading to too much wanton violence. Yeah, that's, that's where I would come down now. I mean, obviously the comeback we kind of already talked about, which is this is just nipping it before it you know gets worse right but i i mean if you're going to start punching people for slippery slopes i mean that that's also a a kind of scary dystopia right yeah not without incident goes on to say i think the idea of guilt by association is really important here or maybe it's collective guilt i want to be clear that i would never advocate punching someone that just voted for a policy i don't like on the other hand i do believe in collective guilt in the sense that entire groups of people even those who weren't alive or voted against something can still benefit from horrifically violent action, i.e. reparations are a good idea. This seems relevant because one problem you pointed in violent action is assigning guilt and also assessing influence. If someone is a literal Nazi, but essentially powerless, what good does resisting them do? In these cases, ignoring really does seem to be the best course of action. When it comes to politicians or judges, as you referenced in this episode, things are a bit trickier since they have some power, but the individual share of any action the government takes is fairly minimal. 
Obviously, a dictator is the other extreme and direct action against them would make sense. Again, I, I don't think it's an easy line to draw. I have an interesting personal situation when it comes to benefiting from a collective, a collective guilt of, of benefiting from horrific violence. So he, he makes the case of reparations, which I don't want to get into because I don't have a well-formed opinion on that. That's a whole can of worms. I don't want to touch it uh, until I've thought more. But in my specific example, my grandmother was in an area of Poland uh, on my mother's side that was basically had been uh, overpopulated. Over the centuries, the, the land there had become more and more densely crowded and when my mom when my grandmother inherited her land, there was just barely enough land there for them to eke out a living and to feed themselves. She was freaking out the entire time because there was literally not enough land to divide among her children. And I mean, we are talking like literally a peasant economy. Her option was to give all her land to one child and he could live and survive and the rest would starve or split it up equally between the children, which is what the social norm was in their society. And then all of them would slowly starve as they can't make enough food to keep living forever. And this was like a major source of war. She would go to bed every night thinking, what the fuck? How are my children going to live? What's going to happen? And then World War II comes around and a large chunk of, of land to her left is depopulated. The Russian government comes in and says, hey, you people over here, you're going over to this area of Poland where there's plenty of land and where all the uh, Jews and Germans and other people that used to be there are dead now. Their land is yours. And she's like, oh, thank God no one starves. Uh, so I am alive today in part because of the fact that she was gifted land from the government due to the horrific violence of World War II. And I don't know what to do about that. Like, I live in America now. Uh, my mom is alive because of this thing happened. But who do I owe money to? Like, right. what I, I, I see how I benefited. I'm glad I'm alive. But I was born in 1980. I... Should I send a check to some family in Europe that their grandfather was killed? I don't know. I don't know what this whole. I don't like the collective guilt thing because it doesn't seem fair to me personally. I guess. Is I what also, I'm yeah, I never liked the idea that you're responsible for what your ancestors did. Mm. Like, how could I be? How could I be blamed? I wasn't even alive. Like, if I'm benefiting from it, I'm wary of those arguments, right? So, like, I mean, I have an ancestor who lost a thumb in fighting for the North in world in the Civil War. Mm. And probably damaged his livelihood. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so did someone cut him a big check or, you know, his descendants because now his family wasn't as wealthy as they might have otherwise have been? Yeah. Um, like that sounds like a bullshit thing to say. I mean, that I, I guess it's never really been clear to me how to divvy those things up. Yeah. And so I, I've never, the other thing too, that just like you're responsible for what your great grandfather did. It's like, no, nah, fuck that. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, how can you be responsible if you weren't born? It could be that there's an argument there. And if there is, be nice and send it my way. I mean, it feels like collective, collective punishment is kind of one of those things that leads to genocide, right? Uh, when we had Alonso Fife on earlier, one of his strongest arguments is that the difference between a civilized society and a barbaric society, one of the major differences, is that a civilized society assigns guilt to who is guilty and spends resources and a lot of effort into making sure that the guilty are punished and the innocent are not. And collective guilt is just a way of punishing the innocent. It's a way of saying, well, I don't want to find out exactly which Arab was responsible for blowing up my uh, tower, so I will punish all the people in this region. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a decent analogy. I mean, I think people will just come back and say, well, we're, we are punishing the guilty. We're just expanding our definition of guilty. <laughs> but that's that sounds like bullshit to me, right? So yeah. uh, what else we got? Okay. 
Ooh, interesting one from Peregrine Took, which I still don't know if that's how you pronounce the name, when we were talking about effective altruism. He says, coming from Germany, a country with a relatively high tax rate, I give about 50% of my gross income to things like tax, public health insurance, public social securities, public retirement, etc. I personally do give a little, and in terms of EA, probably to the wrong causes. However, the question I really had is, wouldn't it be better that we who care would pitch in our money and effort to change the way that society as a whole works? Like the way that the government allocates resources when half of his resources are going to the government. I can touch that really quick. Go for it. In that it seems a lot easier for you personally to save a life Mm -hmm. or a bunch throughout your lifetime Mm -hmm. than it would be for you personally to change how the government allocates its its charity budget, right? Or how the world runs. So, I mean, part of it is just what can you do? It's also not mutually exclusive. You can do the third option, which is do both. Mm -hmm. You can vote for candidates who advocate for more of a you know, global civilization slash take care of or whatever. Um, and you can, you can also donate to, to causes that through at least some hopefully diligent looking into, you find whether or not, and I'm not sure if this came across super well in the episode, that I think that people who are advocates of effective altruism have things that they say that we should care about and that these are the appropriate causes you, sh- you should care about, like, for example, the future of humanity. And I, I tend to buy all those arguments, mm-hmm. but that's not to say that that's the only way to be an effective altruist. You know, if what you really care about is curing, let's say it's curing breast cancer, you know, it's, it's a limited scope, but that's your, that's going to be your hobby horse. And I'm, that's not a pejorative. I'm just mean that that's going to be what you are going to focus on. Mm-hmm. You can give it to whatever that really shitty foundation with all those pink ribbons. Right. Um, the Komen Foundation. Thank you. Yes. Where something like a nickel to your dollar goes to actual research and the rest goes to awareness and branding and pink water bottles and shit. Mm-hmm. Or, you can, or you can give to a better charity, which I should have been able to name one off the top of my head, but I can't. But the idea is that not, I think not general, so much that you care about the right things. I think that's what some people would argue. But that whatever it is you do care about, you're actually doing it. You're actually caring about it in a way that makes you better at makes you a more effective altruist. Yes. Right. I, th- I think that is the core and the most important point. Although I will say that I think breast cancer in general is vastly overexposed and overfunded. And uh, we would do much better as a society to start looking at other things now rather than hammering away on this one thing that already has tons of things pouring into it and and doesn't... Yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, it's big money. That's why it's still so popular because so much money is going to branding and all that stuff. And everyone loves boobies. I mean, that too. I think that's maybe why there's why there's pink ribbons for breast cancer and there's not a ribbon for colon cancer. <laughs> but like lung cancer, you know, people I think care less about because often you, like victims are blamed because, you know, a lot of them smoked or something. I think that really the takeaway is just be the best altruist you can be while focusing on the causes you care about. You know, if you care about the environment, find what specifically you think you can do to make an impact there, right? So Yeah, I, th- th- I know that there's been a lot of debate in EA communities about whether systemic change is a good use of resources or not. And the, the side that I tend to come down on is that for every $1 trying to pull in one direction, saying that this is a good idea, let's pull society this way, there's going to be a dollar pulling in the opposite direction, saying, no, let's move society in, in towards this instead. And to me, it feels like a very big zero-sum game where a lot of money is being burned on both sides, getting nothing accomplished and just keeping the status quo, which is one of the reasons I personally think that s- systemic change on the government level is not very efficient. But 
I mean, I don't know. On the other hand, if you didn't spend that money, then would only the opposition spend money and pull things their way instead? Sometimes it's worth it just to pull away from an undesirable outcome, right? Yeah. But the cool thing about that is that it has the question of whether or not donating to, to causes that are advocating or working for systemic change is successful. That is an empirical question. Yeah. You know, information will come down, come down on that question one way or another, and then we'll know what to do. And if it does turn out that that's the best way to do it, real effective altruists will start donating to that instead. Yeah, but so, a, a lot of people seem to say within the effective altruist community, let's not fight against each other on these uh, social issues and instead focus on things where we know that we won't be fighting against each other with money and all going together at the same thing. Like no one is, no one is for keeping malaria around. <laughs> so, right. So that makes, that makes it so at least you aren't burning money fighting each other. Let me ask a question you guys may well want to edit out. It's, it's, off, it's only tangentially relevant mm -hmm. to this question. I've been looking for a framework, a way to calculate with even a modicum of reliability to apply future weight values, uh, I want to say Bayesian values, specifically on things in the future, on future returns that are longer term. Like the, the example we were fighting about, which is irrelevant, is, all right, we can uh, assassinate the heads of these big, these big oil companies. Or mm. however, however it happens, we can shut down this huge big oil company, right? And we can say, all right, five minutes, that saved no lives. We, we were at negative. And sure, 10 years, we might get back to positive, but we have to rate those 10-year futures so much lower then we're rating these lives now because it's not certain. Is there a really is there a simple non-textbook requiring answer to that to to waiting future I don't lives are a difficult one. Let's not say lives, but to waiting future money to now money. Like it always comes back to the economic argument and I don't know. I, it, it, you probably don't want this in user feedback. but No, no, no. That's a great question. Uh, if anyone out there has an idea, please email us or post something and let us know. I personally do not. I think a lot of it depends on how stable your situation is. Uh, if your government looks to be on the verge of collapse, then obviously you should be spending a lot more right now to get the most use you can out of your money while it's still worth something. Whereas if you think the situation will be very stable and you trust society to to honor the money you have in the bank as actual money, then uh, you can think on a much larger timescale. Yeah, I guess that, that always my big question with effective altruism is how big can I reasonably put my timescale? Yeah. You know, there's a big difference between saving lives today and potential lives in the future. And the way to wait that is really difficult, it sounds like the I'm best thing you can do is the the weight apply much much lower weights to future lives and fix the ones you 100 percent can mm -hmm. i think the bayesian way to do that is just to take however many lives you anticipate you might save multiply it by whatever percentage that might encompasses right and then right yeah go that's with the exactly, solution that's yeah. exactly it. so i think i don't think it's that hard of a question like mm. and that's why i think that many effective altruists care about things like the future of humanity or you know safe ai or whatever it is that will keep humanity from dying out. So like, say the really dumb example is like, that's like giving all of your money to breast cancer awareness and spending none on food, right? Like if you knew that we're 10 years off from a big meteor strike, you should donate, really, you just do whatever you can to keep that meteor from hitting earth. Sure. And because it, even if like, maybe if it was, had a 50% chance of hitting earth, you know, even then you should still do everything you can because the one in two chance that life is wiped out, then all of the causes you care about no longer are, are being so taken care of. So I guess it of. is really just about getting running some really 
detailed math to figure out that real well, if there's, chance of it in the future happening. If there's a 50% chance of it hitting Earth, you should probably donate 50% of your money. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, but it. that's probably like the biggest threat that we can, that, that's possibly happening, right? But I, I mean, mean like, it really depends on, on how likely it is that the future will get here. If, if you think there's a good chance humanity will still be around in 100 years, 200 years, then yeah, invest in things that will make a difference 100 or 200 years out. Uh, if you don't think that humanity will be here in 100,000 years, then don't bother with things that will make a big difference that far out. Although I can't imagine anything that would make a big difference that far out. Ines, you and I are both making investments to a distant future right now. We're it, both signed up for cryonics on the, on the small percent chance that the, that we arrive in a desirable future, we yeah. both think that's worth like $100,000 yeah, well, I mean, now. A hundred yeah. years out, there are a lot of things I can think that could have effects a hundred years out. Most medical research. A hundred thousand. Oh, I'm sorry. No, like even cryonics, I expect to pay off way before a hundred thousand or else not at all. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But like, that's the idea is that you take whatever your expected outcome is, which is really, for me, approaching infinity, you know, or not even infinity, but you could say it approaches a hundred trillion, whereas the average hundred year lifespan and, you know, can go up to like 5,000. And so just the idea that you could live a better life and a longer life if awoken, I, what, do we, what was the word we liked back then? If, if you're re- revived from chronic preservation in a desirable future, the expected positive outcome is huge. Yeah. And so it's worth, you know, whatever, $27 a month right now for me, right? And for people who don't expect to make it to the age of 30, it makes a lot of sense to go ahead and just drink and smoke and take part in fun but dangerous activities because you're not going to live long enough to have to deal with lung cancer and liver failure anyway. Who's expecting not to make it to 30? Uh, I know a lot of people, not personally, but I know of people in inner cities who don't figure that they'll make it to 30. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. They're like, uh, or someone who maybe lives in a uh, war-torn area. It just, there's a good chance I won't live that long, so fuck it. And I don't know what specifically you're talking about, but it seems to me like, well, I could spend all my money on booze or cigarettes, or I could spend all my money on a good pair of shoes and just walk out of wherever the shitty area is, right? Yeah, well, my... Uh, my brother was in the military, and one of the jokes in the military is I should quit smoking because these things will kill you. Because when you're in an actual active duty zone, like my brother was in Afghanistan, that seems like the most far away, stupid thing to worry about. That's a fair point. But, I mean, he's not in there anymore, right. and uh, he had to quit smoking, which is a pain in the ass, and a lot of people don't. Yeah. So, maybe he should have been a little bit more future-minded at that time. Yeah. And I mean, there's all kinds of, of ins and outs there, but I feel like we're getting now a little far abroad. But that is a good yeah. point that, I mean, if you're weighing against long-term outcomes or your long-term prospects are lower, mm-hmm. uh, certainly if you're in Afghanistan too, the um, suspended, suspended Animation Incorporated can't fly out and take you back to Michigan and freeze you, right? Yeah. So uh, really nothing you do like is going to have the that outcome that we're talking about with Chronics. So, And um, for, for a less extreme example, I... Uh I have always believed I live in a very stable society and with decent prospects for the future. So I've spent a lot of my effort into investing in future things. And uh, recently I lost about $40,000 and um, it really, I feel like I should have spent more money in the past because at least then I would have gotten the use out of it. I didn't realize I was in as a precarious situation as I was. And if I was more correctly balanced, I would have had a bigger discount uh, value for the future. I would not have valued the future income as much. And I would have spent my money and got use out of it at the time. 
I mean, this is a situation where I would have been better off spending money in the past rather than saving up for the future because of what happened. True. But probabilistically, that might not have been the case, right? Mm, this could have been like yes. a one in four outcome where still you were better off investing because you had a better chance of it working out. That's right? true. And the dice just came up the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's really want to generalize. Yeah. But it does suck. And but then, it, it, yeah. it did really clarify in my mind that there is a good reason to have some discount for the future because the future isn't 100% certain. Sure. And if the future is anything less than absolutely 100% certain, there should be some discount uh, for future results. Yeah. I mean, Chronix is not my best bet for living forever, right? Yeah. Uh, I What I'm hoping for is that technologies, like life extension technologies, will take off before I die and I could take advantage of those technologies. So the more... I mean, Baskets your eggs are in, the better. And it is a weird uh, thing to advocate for, to have a uh, non-zero future uh, discount, because I, I remember reading somewhere that even a uh, 1% discount rate means that all lives after uh, further than 200 years out are worth essentially zero to you, which uh, mathematically, I suppose, is the case. But I think uh, I personally wouldn't put it at everything past 200 years out is worth a zero. So I guess I don't have a perfectly linear discount function either. I think that's fair. Any other feedback we want to touch on? I want to take this opportunity to say that audio editing and mixing is done by our sound engineer, Kyle Moore. So mad props to him. And also to let our Patreon subscribers know that there is another little bonus mini content up on Patreon. It's just 10 minutes of us talking about our personal lives and crap. Less joking around this time, but, you know, still a little extra bonus. There was one little comment that I liked from uh, Ropus777 on the subreddit. You linked to a a product at neptunic.com that's like a shark suit. And this was in response to the uh, the Max Harms episode where we talked about fiction and I griped about how bad people are in zombie movies. And it's like this, this shark-proof suit. And then you said that would be perfect for a uh, zombie apocalypse. I'm like, you're exactly right. That is what I would want. Unfortunately, I have no idea how much they cost. You have to email the person for cost, which tells me it's probably a fortune. So otherwise they would just list it. But there's an actual photo of a shark chomping down on a dude's <laughs> arm. The dude's just like, yep, <laughs> come at me, bro. <laughs> yeah, good luck if uh, good luck for a zombie to get through all that. So yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Anyway, fun little light thing to, to end on there for now. Cool. Uh, thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Great, thanks. Bye. Bye. Chase, you got to say bye too. Bye. <laughs> I'm going in blind. Fuck it. Let's do this.